Welcome to Companions of the Perception Check. Today we're doing episode 16, Liches. Tonight I'll be your host, Kevin, and I'm joined today by... Seth Colgrove. And Zachary Ruffing. Hey guys. So, Zach, this is... You know what? I'm, I'm just going to pass this off to you. You're, you're the expert in Liches. Um... I'm just kind of like, ooh, there's an there's an there's an entry in the the monster manual. Um, yeah, liches are probably one of they weren't created in D and D, but liches are probably one of the most iconic monsters in D and D, and are generally the most powerful and recognizable undead. I also call them wet your pants monster. But, well, they uh, they appeared. Uh, well, they have uh, literary roots. The earliest I know is uh, from the author Clark Ashton Smith. He was an early uh, sword and sorcery and Lovecraftian horror writer. He wrote uh, back in uh, back in the twenties and thirties. Although I think he wrote up through the through like the fifties or sixties. He lived much longer than. Uh, Lovecraft did um, and in one of the stories he follows uh, the lives of the necromancer kings and liches in that were sort of semi-intelligent undead servitors uh, that the necromancer king slept with he, he made a point to make sure we knew that so they were undead love slaves. Yeah, pretty much. Um, they, uh, they, they were hardly the what TPK monsters that we know today. Then there's also a uh, an old horror book I read called Sticks. Well, it was a short story where a guy is researching. The meaning of these symbols done in sticks that he's finding around the countryside in uh, in New England. He comes across that sort of a lich is sort of in charge of it. The lich is described sort of as an undead priest of some sort. It's extremely powerful, but its uh, its powers are intentionally left vague. You don't really even see it doing anything except in a nightmare scene, and then in the end when the uh, when the author narrator goes into the basement in one of those situations when you should not go into the basement and that's how the story ends so basically in that story the lich just kind of sits around and is just evil he and, sits and around draws him in and kind of tells him yeah I mean some he sort of compels the guy to go into the basement but then you don't know what happens after that well you're always compelled to go in the basement you just shouldn't it's a bad idea, always. My, now, my question is, were you screaming at the book, don't go in the basement, don't go in the basement, don't go in the basement? It's funny, because in that time, he literally was going into a basement. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like going to that old house or something. It was literally, he was going into a basement. So... 
the the only time I, I've got to say that the first the first introduction or exposure I had to to the character Lich was really in and actually in Warcraft three when they introduced it there. Um, uh, I think by then their sort of modern incarnation had largely been determined, right? They yeah, were sort of I, a, yeah, that was undead. Um, the, undead the, sorcerer sort of thing. Yeah, it was a very powerful undead spellcaster who basically came back from the well in in Warcraft three the the character oh my gosh I can't remember his name basically he's slaughtered by Prince Arthas in the first act and in the second act when you take take control as the the undead storyline you bring him back and essentially perform a lich raising ritual yeah um yeah so. i think i think i'm not sure if there was any change between like things like sticks and D, but by the time i i think most modern liches in pretty much all fantasy media i've seen um pretty much follow the something at least partially similar to what D is largely doing with them now Uh, I mean, they've. I mean, how how has D and D moved with them? Well, liches have always kind of had the same backstory. They're very powerful spellcasters, usually arcane or divine, but usually arcane, who are profoundly evil, uh, and perform a sort of blasphemous rite in which they create a phylactery. This is changed exactly what it is over the course of the uh, over the course of the series and even still changes a bit from individual to individual usually it's a box with blood soaked scraps of paper or sometimes it's a piece of jewelry sometimes it's a magic item sometimes it's a mirror sometimes it's a spell book but the lich's life force is stored within that the lich uh, then lives indefinitely as long as that phylactery stays powered and stays intact. You can literally completely destroy a lich's body, like, even, like, wipe it out of existence with a sphere of annihilation or something. And it will appear wherever its phylactery is, no later than seven days later with all its equipment and at full health. Well, that's just a handy trick. (laughs) Yeah, and they added in 5th edition that a lich actually has to feed souls to its its phylactery in order to stay uh, to stay viable otherwise it goes into a demi-lich state but and they even have further done it that a lich that regularly feed souls can even look, appear, and more or less act human. Like, I mean, like, act alive. Exastam, uh, in the haunted land, before, like, except for kind of having 
really unnaturally narrow hands and fingers kind of looks like a normal middle-aged actually kind of healthy guy and he's one of the most powerful liches in the realm well um i did recall in the um i, I read the lost library of Chimanther, which I, I is one of the more forgettable DD novels I've read. That a basically a, a a lich guards the library and has kind of perverted his own view of what needs to be done instead of guarding it for future generations use he now guards it and wants to move it to another dimension where it cannot be only his yeah uh liches have always had a uh, had a repertoire of powers too one they are one of the most intelligent monsters in the game um in second edition from the monstrous uh manual that I had, they were like the only, one of only like two or three monsters in the entire almost 400 page book that had godlike intelligence, which is an intelligence score of 21 or less, I mean 21 or more. Um, liches also have always had sort of a set of powers, they, they're incredible spellcasters. Um, they have a paralyzing touch, often a paralyzing gaze, uh, a plethora of immunities, although that's been toned down a bit. When they, for, for a long time, when they first showed up, they were immune to cold, fire, and electricity, as well as pretty much every status problem. But now, they aren't, they have no resistance to fire whatsoever, they oh, they take half damage from lightning, but they're still immune to cold and necrotic. Well, it would make and, sense they're immune to necrotic. They're undead already. Yeah, and uh, they also uh, are DMs are often encouraged to give unique liches um, custom-made spells. Liches are often incredibly old. They're already unbelievably powerful spellcasters at the time they're created, and usually liches are obsessed with their own research, so they continue to develop magic on their own, and again, they're also freakishly intelligent. Because that's what I'm always looking for in an encounter, is something that you've made up to screw us over with. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I don't remember seeing this spell in the player's handbook. <laughs> I, I never saw in the player's handbook group, group, unsavable power word kill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure I would have noted that had I seen it. It, it also, it also ca uh, casted automatic successful counterspell if you try to use something like plane shift. 
you if you use a spell of slot eighth level or lower, it automatically is countered. And not countered isn't just stopped, it's then hurled back at you. <laughs> See, I don't think, feel like this is funny banter. I feel like you're making notes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you you mentioned the the demi lich earlier, Zach. Are there any other kinds of liches, or do you just have liches and demi liches? Well, well, there's demi liches, which are ones that are that again fail, uh, at least in the current canon, uh, either fail to feed sufficient soul to their phylactery, or just stop doing it, or they allow the energies that hold their body together to go elsewhere. Like Atararak from uh, from the Tomb of Horrors, he's a demi-lich, but normally he's somewhere on some other plane doing God knows what. Uh, now, demi-liches aren't as powerful. Uh, they're like a challenge rating 15 as opposed to 18. But they still are pretty dangerous. They're more just a cloud of dust, bones, and a skull, but they can trap the soul. They still get some spell casting. They're almost as hard to destroy as a lich normally is. You still have to find the phylactery and all to destroy it permanently. Don't quite act with the same degree of intelligence, but still definitely a credible threat. There's also the Archlich. Uh, I haven't seen these lately as monsters, um, but they were a big deal in uh, second edition. They were liches that underwent a further process, and even by the standards of the lich monster, you know, type, were ridiculously powerful. But however, whatever process turned them into what they were and such, they usually maintained more of their humanity and sanity and could be pretty much any alignment. Even good archliches were a thing. Uh, there was actual, there's, I've seen them once in a novel. Well, I've seen one once in a novel. Do you, oh, do you remember what novel? What, it was one of the um, it was one of the Shadow of the Avatar books. I think it was the first one, and it kind of had a romantic thing going on with Elminster because every girl kisses Elminster. That's just how Ed Greenwood works. But she, she basically allows herself to be destroyed in order to fight off Manchu. Okay. Um, <laughs> any more besides those? Well, there's the Alhoun, which are... Uh, they are sort of a lesser Mind Flayer Lich. Um, they create something called a Periaptive Memory, I believe. It's a... Uh, it's a stone where they imprison the psyches and souls of several uh, mortal beings and then create themselves as sort of lesser 
undead liches in groups of nine. And they all are inherently linked with one another and can access things with the periast of... I think it's called a periast of mind trapping. I'm not sure. But they're not straight-up liches. There's illitha liches, which are just straight-up mind flayer liches. And as far as 5th edition goes, minus any unique stuff, they're the most powerful ones in the game. Because... They have a lot of the Lich's spell casting, but then they also still have the Mind Flayer's Mind Blast, Extract Brain, and Psionic Ability. Hmm. Which uh, makes them pretty tough. There's, uh, there's the Veilnorns, which are pretty big in the realm. They're actually an elf-only Lich, usually described as being more ghostly than skeletal. Uh, they are usually meant to uh, meant to protect uh, elven holy sites, um, and they can be of any alignment, but are frequently good. And unlike a lot of undead, they don't. Unlike a lot of liches, they don't usually construct phylacteries, or if they do. They don't uh, replace them if they get destroyed. That that's I believe I believe a uh, uh, Bailnorn um, was a character. They had a Bailnorn in the Lost Library of Chimanther uh, that I that I mentioned earlier. It kind of set up a battle of wills and who can outsmart who between the primary lich and the Baelorn towards the end. Yeah. Yeah. They uh, they appear in several novels. Uh, they're an interesting little undead. And speaking of elves, there's also the Undying of Eberron. Undying aren't quite liches, but they're very similar. They're sort of a kind of a worshipped court by the elves and some elves in Eberron they're kind of archfey and they're kind of undead all at once it's um, diversify yeah the, the thing is they channel positive energy rather than negative um, like most undead do which changes somewhat how they work but I've never actually seen any of them static so I wouldn't know. Uh, and I don't know a lot about Eberron, but the Undying Court is a major thing, and it's also recommended if you are playing in Eberron, they, uh, they are a good patron for Undying Pact Warlocks. Uh, then, uh, sort of going along with Faye, there's the, uh, the Thicket Dryad uh, Lich, it, it was a 4th edition lich because monsters were so easy to customize and stat back then they had them all over the place the thicket drive was sort of an unintentionally created lich when sort of a necrotic flight uh, hit the tree that they were attached to and they would become this crazy spell flinging crazy spell flinging just psychopathic 
bad woman when they uh, when their trees got infected and that infection would spread throughout the forest. Uh, they also probably took time to create that one because they were much more important in fourth edition and dryads weren't kind of just sidelined in that one as much. You could even play as a Hama dryad, which was sort of a non-anchored dryad if you wanted. And then there were and then there was the Void Lich. Which was one of the strongest uh, non-unique liches in fourth edition. They were created if like a far realm influence hit someone right as they were achieving lichdom and then they would be this weird, you know, eldritch tentacle monstrosity. Undead monstrosity. Extremely powerful. So you were kind of less you were kind of cursed with awesome. Oh, how horrible for them. I mean we've got all these different types of liches and and they're known monsters and you can pull them in your campaign. Were you able at any point to really play as a lich? Uh, I didn't know any in the second edition stuff I had, but it did say what spells you needed to know and cast to become one. Oh, wait a minute, I forgot a lich in that. No, uh, there was also Draco liches, which were, instead of a phylactery, they kind of had a horde that stored souls, and they were powerful undead dragons. Also, if their horde stayed intact, and the body of the Dracolich was destroyed, they wouldn't actually reform the bo that particular body, but when wherever they stored their soul came into contact with another dragon, corpse, or body, they would move to that one. Hmm. So, since dragons are very long-lived, it could be quite a while. Yeah. Unless in I suppose, edition, what? I said unless I suppose you they they put their hoard in the secret in the secret dragon graveyard just for that purpose. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there there were they did say in second edition what spells you needed to know to make the potion to become a lich, but it was still really, really gambling if you were going to be one, and I never saw stacks for actually being one. Uh, in third edition, they just straight out let you be one. You could, uh, there was the prestige class for arcane lich, and then there was the prestige class for divine lich. Um, other than, you know, what kind of you know, what kind of class you needed to be to start getting what you needed for it. Um, they didn't differ too much. It was more how you got there. Ah. But both had very, very difficult requirements. You had to know a large number of very specific spells. You also needed to have a number of very, very powerful and very expensive items, uh, including gems of unbelievably high worth that unless your DM was straight up giving you a chance to find one you probably wouldn't find one on your own so they were hard to get but they were also one of the most powerful 
uh, prestige classes of them all. Mm-hmm. There was also the Dread Necromancer, which was sort of uh, sort of what uh, it sort of was to sorcerer what Necromancer's specialization was to wizard, except Dread Necromancer was its own class. When you got up, as you started to gain levels, you gained more and more undead traits. And eventually, if you got high enough, you were, in essence, a lich without a phylactery. Hmm. And in 4th edition, in one of the Arcane Power books, I believe Arcane Power 2... Archlich was an epic destiny an arcane character could take on at level 21. I would just love to see an Archlich bard. <laughs> what kind of what kind of songs would would they sing? Obviously death metal. I don't know. All, all <laughs> they would have to do stuff from Nightmare Before Christmas or they would uh or they would, or all their arcane gestures would be stuff from the thriller dance. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. Sign me up. <laughs> and in uh, fifth edition, still young, but they haven't. Uh, they they aren't really going for prestige classes in this edition, as far as we can tell. Not many people are interested. I'm certainly not, but. Maybe, but I don't think uh, I don't think we're gonna see player liches uh, for a while, at least. Uh, at this point, I don't think they really they would really add too terribly much to the to the game as a playable class. Yeah, or well, I mean, I could see this maybe a wizard tradition or something, but I don't see how they would keep it in bounds. I mean a level twenty, a level twenty spell cat like spellcaster using character levels is like a challenge rating twelve monster, and the weakest lich we currently have available is a fifteen. Mm-hmm. So it would, you'd have to be a really muted lich even at level twenty. I mean, if they uh, if they made that a thing, uh, I would definitely be all over it, but. Liches are my favorite undead, to be honest. Well, I mean, you're you, you've read more D and D novels than I have, Zach. I know of a couple. Um, you have any notable liches from the D and D books? Uh, yes, there is. Uh, there's a uh, Valindra Shadowmantle. Um, she features prominently, well, at least partially, in, uh, in the Tomb of Annihilation uh, adventure, which was released a couple months ago. Uh, she also is in the Drizzt books. She's an evil moon elf that eventually achieved lichdom. She was pretty darn crazy until she got fixed by the Avalethic Sovereignty, which just sounds wrong on so many levels. Because the Avalethic sovereignty is Avaleth. They don't really fix anything. They're 
mad, eldritch, mind-enslaving horror. Tell us how you really feel about them. <laughs> but, uh, she has always... I, I've only largely read the Driz books where she's kind of crazy. Which is kind of funny because she'll just be like, she'll be talking to the skull of her dead husband who was also a lich. As and one does. It, yeah, but, but like, like she'll be talking, like, just sort of like, I'll get revenge for you. And then she'll suddenly, like, start talking like a little girl and breaking the song. And she's, uh, as far as I know, she's a credible threat again, though. Uh, and uh, probably my favorite of all the liches in the books is, uh, uh, books or D&D is that Tam, who Valindra has actually worked with. He was sort of the first among equals in Fey originally. He was the Zulker of necromancy. But then he ruthlessly took over the country and sort of started persecuting all non-necromancer red wizards. But he pulled back on that um, in the past couple of years game time because he has realized that uh, that other schools of magic have stuff to offer. You know, like illusion, which is so much cool. Well, not so much cooler than necromancy. Necromancy is number two. <laughs> I, I foresee uh, this is this is how Zach dies in a panel among wizards when he ranks the orders and everybody else gets mad at him. <laughs> uh, he is a major figure in in the <coughs> in the Haunted Lands books, but he appears in others. He appears in a couple of the Driz books. A whole bunch of authors have used that tale, uh, but none more extensively, no more extensively than uh, than Richard Byers, I believe, the one who wrote Haunted Lands. Hmm. Uh, there's the king I, I know I'm not going quite in order with the notes but there's the king in copper who is a secondary character in the Blades of the Moon Sea trilogy uh, he first sort of helps the main hero's foster brother try to take over the town but when he fails he's like eh and he kind of cryptically helped the main character here and there for his own ends, which you never really find out what they are. So wait, is he, is he, he is he an, is but, he a lich beforehand, or is he like, oh, I failed, I'm gonna go be a lich? No, no, no. He he helps the brother who is mortal, but gives him like a magic artifact to summon undead. Ah. You never quite, you never can quite figure out what the King and Copper is doing. He's called the King and Copper because his sort of shtick, his election sort of appearance is he he holds himself together by actually having rings of copper welded around him, holding him together, like like bands of copper, like you'd hold a around like you know a barrel. 
That is odd. Yeah. Uh, he do, he is a major character, and often like you know, foretells the future for the main character, or gives him hints, gets him to steal a book that you never really figure out what it's for near the uh, end of the series. Uh, there's uh, there's that archlich. I can't remember her name. That uh, that Elminster works with in the first book of the Shadow of the Avatar books, who basically sacrifices herself to kill Manchun, which is kind of pointless because Manchun is a guy who clones himself, and whenever he dies, he releases another clone. Sounds like Ed Greenwood's crossing, crossing genres there. That is a uh, very Mister Sinister of him. <laughs> Actually, it's pretty funny. There was uh, there was one thing that you guys might want to look into. It's called a, uh, it's called the Manchun War, and it's something goes wrong, and like a whole bunch of Manchun's clones are all released at once. And the thing is, clones are automatically hostile to any other clones or any you know copies of themselves. So. They start, they're all, all all after Elminster, but then as they get closer to each other, their targets change. And at one point, two comes come straight to Elminster's house to kill him, and then when he opens the door, there's just two, two uh, piles of ash on his doorstep. As far as we know now with Manchun, there's at least one left. Who's a vampire? And I'm not happy about that. But anyway, uh, uh, Manchun is far more powerful than, than Elminster is frequently. And he's also more... I mean, he is extremely subtle, but he... When he wants to throw full power out, he is very willing and able to do so. And so he basically comes in with dozens of spells on him at once, and Elminster doesn't have a prayer beating him, so the Lich basically expels all her arcane energy at once to kill him. Hmm. Uh, there's... Trying to think of them. Uh, I have others. Oh, there's Vecna, of course. Vecna, who is actually covered in the uh, in the in the uh, lore you should know section that aired yesterday on the uh, Dragon Talk podcast. Get out of listen. Uh, uh, he is depending on the time and setting. He is. A god, he is a super powerful lich trying to become a god. He is a super powerful lich trying to gain control of all undead. He's a god trying to get control of all undead. Just his motives and actual station change from campaign to campaign. He's been in Ravenloft, he's been in Greyhawk, he's a major god of points of light. And he's even been mentioned here and there in the realm. 
didn't we didn't we face some Vec Knights recently? You faced Vec Knights several times. D didn't we crush Vec Knights with a rock or a stone? Yep. And you just got out of the library with uh, with Music Il Amber uh, last session. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of cute uh, to say we did this when really one person was responsible. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and then an existing outside of fourth edition, I don't know it. Um, she's sort of an exarch, which is what they did with a lot of lesser gods in, uh, in fourth edition to keep the god total low. Which is sort of a an exarch is sort of a subordinate deity. She either appears as a hideous bronze plated jewel encrusted skeleton, or as a beautiful bronze skinned woman. Hmm. Often appears in societies before they co become decadent, and she's sort of uh, she's sort of Vecna's number two. She's uh, she's known as Lady Osternath, and she is also known as the Bronze Lich. And I uh, oh, and there is a lich you in the uh, in the Curse of Strahd adventure. He has had previous dealings with Strahd, and Strahd basically broke his brain. So you have to use a lot of healing spells if you want to make him a viable ally. Because um, he he has no spells, his intelligence is really low when you encounter him, stuff like that. Hmm. In fact, when you encounter him, if you go to him at the right time, he's extremely killable. <laughs> Despite that that adventure is only supposed to go through level 11. Or maybe 10, but not real high. Uh, and finally, there's a non-evil lich in, uh, in both Thornhold, which is the fourth song and swords book, and also in the uh, also appears briefly in the Princes of the Apocalypse adventure. Hmm. He is the brother of the uh, founder of the Knights of Samular, which is a uh, I believe it's dedicated to Helm. It's an order of paladin. Uh, thing is, on a battle, uh, this guy is badly wounded, and so. The only real thing uh, thing that they can do is effectively use this scroll that makes him more or less a lich and he stays guarding the fortress that the Knights of Samular used to hold. He's lawful neutral in alignment and uh, if you're not super violent he's not a threat to you uh, in that adventure. So he basically just come out swinging against our party. Yeah. Actually, I love... He, he gets a different level 9 spell than liches normally get. He gets time stops. Mm -hmm. And I like the tactics they give for him if you if you pitch him off, because he'll use time stop. He'll, class, he'll cast cloud kill, which is basically just a really large cloud of poison gas. Uh -huh. And then before the time runs out on time stop, he leaves the room. Oh, man. 
I mean, you're not affected by the cloud kill till time starts again three minutes later, but... He's long gone by then. Yeah. Those are all the ones I think I can think of. Yeah, those are the only ones I'd know of as well. Uh, I mean, there are, there are a number of uh, there are a number of Valenorns, but I don't I can't think of any as major major characters. Yeah, neither can I. All right. Well, you know what? I I think that will do us for this evening. Um, I'd like to thank Zach for his giganto knowledge of liches. Seth, your input. Best undead. Best undead. And you should thank me for not saying "lich please" once. I had to fight <laughs> it back at least twice. <laughs> <laughs> well, next time we'll we'll give you more opportunities to throw in some puns. <laughs> um, but like to thank you all and. Don't forget to check us out at companionsofperception.net and you all have a great day and we'll see you next time. I would like to thank all of our guests as well as bensound.com for our music, Extreme Action. You can find them at bensound.com as well as visit us at companionsofperception.net.